grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this was one of my grandfather's favorite uh, passages. I'm going to be talking about my grandfather this morning. My grandfather was Martin Perry. Uh, this is a book my mother wrote about him. Uh, MJP, Beloved of God. Uh, first time. My grandfather used the phrase Beloved of God in reference to himself, not out of any sense of pride, um, but because he recognized that we are the Beloved of God purely through God's grace and God's mercy. Uh, my grandfather was a wonderful minister, a wonderful pastor, a great-grandfather, taught me how to fish, taught me how to skin a bluegill, how to dip it in flour and cook it, fished me out of the creek the three times I fell in while he was teaching me to fish for bluegill. Two of them I fell in, and one time I, to this day, I said my brother pushed me. Um, but my grandfather also taught me about the Bible and what it meant to live a life of faith. Um, and my mother titled it MJP because my grandfather never wrote his name. It was always his initials. I think the only time he ever signed his name was on, on checks. Um, and my faith is fundamentally affected by my grandfather, by how he approached the gospel, how he approached ministry, um, how he approached people. And the reason I've been thinking about it was while I was unloading my office and putting my stuff up in the office, I found this in the box, in the bottom of, of the box. And I had forgotten. Uh, my mom was really proud of this. She wrote this. She was originally going to write it out of my grandfather's diaries. My grandfather kept the diary. He wrote something every day. As my mom got into the diary, she discovered that while my grandfather was faithful to write, he was not a particularly good diarist. Um, a lot of things are happening in the Bancroft Gospel Ministries. And on those days when very important stuff happened, my grandfather was likely to write about the weather, uh, about the price of gas, uh, about the people that he met going from the gas station back there. Uh, and so in terms of finding out what was actually going on in his ministry, there's not a whole lot to be mined there. But the stuff that she does find are some of the things that tell us a lot about grandfather. And we're focusing today on this idea of the beloved of God because it's a concept that reflects both the humility of my grandfather and my grandfather's understanding of what it meant to walk in Christ. Now, I have been visiting with my mother by reading the book, and yes, my mom passed away, I guess it's been almost six years ago now, and my grandfather passed away in the same year Princess Diana died in 1995. But I've got this book, and I've got wonderful memories of my mother. And as I read this book, I realized this is my mom. Her writing style, the way she tells stories, the way she reflects things. Uh, and over time, when people pass, you, you, you don't remember them as often, you don't go back to the memory. And so stepping into the way my mother thought, uh, and she wrote this about eight years before she died, it's interesting to see her journey. Um, she had a difficult childhood. Being the daughter, the only daughter of two missionaries who left Philadelphia to go to the short hills of Tennessee to take over a mountain ministry was difficult. Um, her mother, her mother, my grandmother, was ill. Um, 
And that's been the other interesting thing. I didn't know my grandmother very well. I only have two real memories of her. Um, and I have stories from other people who knew her as a stern, fiery redhead. Uh, but I didn't know much about her faith. And my grandmother's faith is as much the story of my grandfather's faith as it is a story in her own life. The, the two things I know about my grandmother is that the state of her house without any ends. And during the period between World War I and World War II, she went to Europe to do some relief work with Quakers. And she was somehow in Sweden and Norway. And she came back with some artifacts from, uh, they're called the reindeer laps of the Laplands. They, these, these were one of the last European nomadic tribes that followed the reindeer. And somehow in the relief work, she spent three weeks with the Laplanders. And so we had all these, these nice carvings and bone carvings and whatnot. But nowadays, you probably get that customs. Um, and that's pretty much all I remember about my grandmother. But as we'll see in here, she was an anchor to my own grandfather's faith. Um, and so as we focus in on the level of God, well, I want to wrestle with the question, does God care about me? And does he care for me? Because those were the questions that drove my grandfather, drove my grandfather's ministry. Uh, and that's what we get out in this book. Now, my grandfather ran the Bancroft Bible Camp. Uh, it's in Kingsport, Tennessee. Uh, he ran the camp, was later on. When he came down to East Tennessee to take over the Bancroft Gospel Mission, the mission composed of Sunday schools, teaching in the public schools, and daily vacation Bible school. Um, and it really was daily. Uh, when, when the classes let out, when the school let out at the, for summer school, the churches often offer programs so that younger kids would have a place to go while the parents were working, either in the factory or in the fields. And so my grandfather came to Tennessee to preach in, this, in various churches, to run a bi various Bible studies. Uh, and most of the Bible studies met in people's homes. They didn't meet in the church. And then students began with a vacation Bible school. Well, because grandfather was my grandfather, the daily Bible school fell to my grandmother. Um, and it's interesting to see church in those days. Uh, so in 1920, I don't remember right here. So in 1929, uh, they start looking for a, a Bible camp ministry. Um, and in the 1930s, they really start praying on it. Uh, now, Bancroft is what we call a faith ministry. It still is. What that means is, if you volunteers who come to be a worker at Bancroft, they don't pay you a salary. You raise your own support by churches, and the ministry relies entirely on God's will for support. In other words, when, when, direct, when camp director or personnel from the Bancroft go to speak at churches, they talk about the mission of Bancroft. They talk about their track ministry. They talk about their book publishing. They talk about the Bible camp. They talk about the churches they work in. They do not speak about the financial needs of the camp. And running a summer camp, there are a lot of financial needs. But because they believe that God will deal with those needs, what they believe is that they speak about the ministry, God will move people's hearts to send whatever support God needs them. And the story of Beloved of God is a story of how God moved to meet these needs, sometimes in miraculous ways. Lots of times in the silly um, One of my favorite 
stories in the book. Because my grandfather has been up in uh, up, upstate Pennsylvania, Holly, Pennsylvania, visiting his family. He needs to get back home, and he's in the bus terminal. And this is in 1935. Bus from Philadelphia to Kingsport was a dollar. Uh, the bus ticket was a dollar. But my mother, who was six or seven years old, really, really, really wanted a brownie camera for Christmas. Uh, and this was November. My grandfather has a dollar in his pocket at the terminal. And as he's walking to buy his ticket, there's a little kiosk there that's selling the brownie camera for a dollar. Now, they were usually a dollar fifty. So my grandfather looks at that, looks at the ticket. He buys the camera. He's got no money. He can't get home. And so he says, Lord, I'm going to buy this camera for my daughter. You've got to get me home. And so he walks in. He buys the camera. And as he's walking to the ticket booth, a woman who had just heard him speak walked up to him, shook his hand, said, how are you doing, Mr. Perry? Walked off and doing that to him a dollar and 25 cents, which bought him the ticket and let him buy a little pack of peanuts for my mother. These are the things that characterize my grandfather's life. Um, and now there aren't many faith ministries really left in the world. Um, I know of four of them. Uh, there's, there's Bancroft, there's a camp ministry in southern Kentucky which operates on the same faith principle. Uh, in fact, it was funny, uh, our church in South Carolina uh, did some work for the camp, and the camp director came down and spoke at our church um, at, at just a kind of a small gathering, laid out the ministry of the church, and somebody said, so how much do you need? And the director said, whatever God lays on your heart to support either in resources, labor, or, or food, that's what God lays in heart. Well, how much do you need? Well, this is the thing to do. And they kept asking, how much do you need? And maybe he said, you know, we're a faith ministry. If I tell that, I'm shaping what you think God's will for you is. Uh, so faith ministries are very serious about that. There's, there's a Sunday school ministry in Kentucky is faith-based. Um, and I have heard of one in Maine, but I wasn't able to find them on the web page, so I don't know if they're still around. Uh, they used to be very prominent ways of doing this anymore. Uh, and to kind of give you a context of, of Bancroft Bible Camp, there was a series of books that were popular in the 70s and 80s, and then there was a 90s television show about her name was Christy. Uh, she was the mother of the pastor of the U.S. Senate for a number of years, and the book talked about her experiences in a, in a mission just north of Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, and the book was very popular, well, she was at a camp that was a similar kind of faith-based camp. It was about an hour and a half south of where Bancroft is. And my grandfather knew the operator of that camp really well. Now, the camp that Christie was at was Quaker camp. And my grandfather was a non-denominational, but within the Baptist tradition camp. Um, and in 1929, there were 57 Bible camps in the eastern United States. Today, there are eight. Um, and yet camp ministry is such, such an important thing. So my grandfather then, while he's establishing the camp, uh, as he learned to live by this principle of faith, my grandfather used to say that there are three basic answers to prayer. God will, or four basic answers. God will say, yes, I will answer that prayer. No, I shouldn't give it to you at this time. Wait a while. And then his favorite one that always drove me on Father crazy was God to say, I'll do it my way and in my time. So 
And those are his, his more like, we have been praying, for example, in this church for quite a while that God would give Nixon the money to buy a van. Uh, because Nixon, as a missionary in the Philippines, has between 10 and 12 churches that he goes around on a regular basis. I remember during the summer, he was doing five vacation Bible schools. At least he wasn't doing it at once. Um, and we've been praying that they would send the money. But then I realized a while back, well, God doesn't have to have money to provide the van. You can provide that van by any method possible. And so I've stopped praying God send the money. What I'm praying is God provide the van. Um, and we'll see how God answers that prayer. Now, God's provision for the camp is an example of the beloved of God. In 1930 and 1940, uh, there was a peanut butter manufacturer in Tennessee, and they always had an overproduction run, and so they would bring these 11 or 12 six-gallon tins of peanut butter and give them to the camp. Now, for those of you who are not old enough to remember this, and those of you who are old enough to remember this, I can see the look of horror in your face because you know where the story is going. Peanut butter in those days was not pasteurized which meant that you would open the tin, and anybody who remembers this, what was at the top of the peanut butter? Big layer of oil, and underneath that was the, was the peanut How did you get the oil back into the peanut butter? You have to stir it. Yes, and so there were always five cooks in the kitchen, and one cook's job was to spend the whole day stirring. As you imagine, five, six gallons. Yeah, yeah Karen is looking like I remember it. Oh, no. No. <laughs> Okay, so, so she's not quite that old. Pat and Richard, Pat and Richard, I, and Gerald and Mary, they remember these. But yes, I mean, you'd stick and stir. Now, the only reason I remember this is that that peanut butter was cheaper than the regular stuff, and so when I started working at camp, they were still getting it. And so you'd spend the whole day stirring it in, and stirring it in, and stirring it in. Now, we, so they had this constant supply of peanut butter that had to be stirred in. The thing that they didn't have on any regular basis and there are 11 separate stories. Uh, they're five minutes away from many of the campers in to eat lunch, no bread anywhere in the building, and somebody comes up. Uh, and so my grandfather has entries in his diary called Our Daily Bread. Uh, in 1941, uh, the bakery, which was two blocks over, overbaked by 10 loaves, uh, and so that gave them enough food for that day. Uh, the bakery just called and said, we've got this over overload, can you use it? And grandfather said, well, yes, we can. So they bought them over. And then while they were talking, the baker said, look, I could run off five loads extra for the rest of the summer. And so just by that one contact, they had enough bread to cover the summer. Uh, 1970, uh, grandfather's entry, no bread. And then the women from Gravely Baptist Church brought loaves and bread is provided. And grandfather writes in his diary, pray for women. That's that is the, the other than the weather, the most common entry in my grandfather's diaries are praise the Lord. Um, my memory of an event like this was my first junior count. You came in as a camper, and then when you turned 14 or 15, if you had been faithful and had memorized 300 Bible verses for three summers in a row, you got to be a junior counselor and got to go for free. Well, my first summer as a junior counselor, I came in. Um, and my grandfather and Guy Tilly and Hurwitz and a couple of us were on the porch. We had, we had this wonderful kitchen. I say wonderful because I was 13 or 14 years old. The buildings were built by volunteer help 
with roughly wood. There was a lot of enthusiasm in the construction of the camp buildings, although not a great deal of architectural ability. Um, if you're in the camp and the kids start singing, uh, you know, round, you know, round the table, you will go and they start going like this. You, you feel the kitchen going like that. In 1978, the uh, OSHA people came in and looked at the camp, and we were required to rebuild all of the buildings uh, throughout. So, uh, if you go back to, I think it's my second slide where I have the picture of the camp. Yeah, this nice, wonderful building, that is nothing like what the original chapel looked like. The original chapel was clapboard. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, it's the same shape, but uh, the window where the air conditioner is, the one next to it, was just big open. And so in the winter, we would put tar paper over that, and then uh, we got the lumber to build that. And by the way, all of that lumber, that, that's real nice. It's basically, basically what it is, it's kind of like Lincoln Logs. Um, all of that was donated by a man who had been a camper, and they were praying, how can we rebuild our buildings, because that's fairly expensive. And this man donated, I think the book says, 4,000 lumber feet, uh, feet of lumber which allowed them to redo most of the buildings and they had no over the chapel. Uh, now, if you see that little trailer back behind there, uh, right back here, it's kind of small. Sort of back there. Uh, see it right back there? They needed a, what they wanted to build was an apartment, just a little small square thing for visiting missionaries and speakers. And they had this little nice flat spot of land. They were going to build the place. And they were praying, we got to build something. But each time God sent them money to build this little building, something else happened, and the money had to go somewhere else. And my grandfather was thinking, are we not supposed to build this building? I don't know what's going on. Well, a family down the street bought themselves a nice house and moved out, and had a fairly nice trailer. They, they couldn't get rid of it. They tried to sell it, tried to sell it, tried to sell it. For four years, they were trying to sell it, and it wouldn't sell. And for three years, they've been impressed, don't need this to him. Well, no, we want the money from it. They couldn't sell it. Grandfather couldn't get the cow to build. Finally, after three years, they yielded to the spirit, and they said, we'll donate this cow to this trailer. And when he came in, the very summer that we got that trailer, a missionary came in, and he had with him four uh, people who wanted to come up and see what a mission work in America looked like. And so they came out from Chile. And had, we had just enough room to put the trailer there. And so my grandfather named the trailer Rehoboth, which means God has made the universe. It's these kinds of things that I grew up wanting. So uh, next to my slide. Um, God's faithfulness to the ministry. Let my grandfather write several books about how God had cared for the ministry. And the first one he titled, The Abided Faithful. And that kind of became a running theme. And so grandfather published four or five of these, talking about different ways God had met the needs of the ministry or the needs of the parent family in just amazing ways. The Brownie camera, uh, in 1972, my grandfather, uh, and this is a, a typical grandfather's story, he was visiting a missionary in Venezuela. And my grandfather by that time had, had a fairly full set of upper falls to the hearing aid. And he, the freezer down at the mission house broke, and so my grandfather, they pull it out and they get it fixed. And then my grandfather heads down farther south to visit another town farther south. We get halfway down there, and my grandfather realizes he doesn't have his hearing aid. Um, and my grandfather's incredible. Um, yeah, she's, she's tapping David. 
Uh, and we're convinced that when grandfather didn't want to hear you, he turned the hearing aid off. Um, and then when you left the room, you turned it way up. Because you could yell at him, he wouldn't hear a thing, but if you made a comment way over here, you could hear it all. Um, so anyway, so, so they're traveling. He realizes he doesn't have his hearing aid. And remember, this is faith ministry, so he doesn't use that money to buy a hearing aid. They get to this other town, and a man in the other town has a hearing aid that he doesn't use because he doesn't like to hear. And so he gave it to my grandfather. But if you know anything about hearing aids, they have to be kind of special. You get to take somebody else's hearing aid. My grandfather tried to make it work. And then, so they were gone about a week and a half. And when they got back, uh, the people at the mission house were laughing their heads off because four days after they had left, the women had gotten two packs of meat out of the freezer, and grandfather's hearing aid had been in the freezer and frozen the whole time. And they had dried it out and thought it. They didn't know if it would work or not, but it, it worked enough for grandfather to get back to East Tennessee. And when he got back, there was a check from the Beartown Church up in Pennsylvania for $55.20, which was exactly the amount of money that they replaced the hearing aid because by the time he got back, it had gone on the fritz. Um, the message of grace I get from this book is, again, getting to know not just my mom, again, but getting to know my grandmother, who I did not know that well. So let me just read you two passages here. Um, George Cloud from the Old Kingsport Presbyterian Church uh, only through his business to the church, remarked, I never knew anybody quite like Grandfather. He would say in a testimony that he received the bill on Thursday and had no money to pay it. And by the following Tuesday, the bill was paid. This was indeed how needs were supplied. The first years, 28, 29, and 30, were testing times, times in which uh, my grandfather and grandmother were put to difficult financial stress waiting upon the Lord, doubting and suddenly rejoicing when the need was obviously met. This is an entry from my grandfather's diary, March 19 and 19. Nine. Ruth and I pray especially for funds. I and weakness achieve confidence. Afterwards, realize that we can get proud of our faith. Perhaps someday we will have faith to believe for souls. We do have funds in reserve, and how the tickets are laid. March 21, 1929, we received the gift of $5 from Mrs. James. June the 5th, we have been very short of money. Tonight, we received $10 from Doylestown. 1930, Alex, this is Martin's brother, gave me $2 from Charles Travis. That pays the laundry bill for the family. $2 in 1930 went a long way. March 2nd, 1936, we discussed Ruth's need for a trip north. She's going north to talk about the ministry. We need $50. We don't have it. The next morning, the mail brings $100 from Doylestown Church. In his entry, he says, how great the Lord is. The entry about that, that that I had not realized, I pray in weakness, Ruth prays in confidence. My grandfather, I guess, learned the lesson that by the time I got to know him, and I did the math, that entry, my grandfather was 29 years old. When I got to know him, he was 60 years old, so in my mind, my grandfather was always 60, 70, 80, or 90, and so even when he's like 29, I think of him as a 60-year-old man. Um, but his faith was just amazing. And this one here, um, they're looking for a place to, to, to plant the camp permanently. As Martin prays for guidance, he asked for several things. I mean, good ground, trees, running water, and an accessible location. As he prayed, the thought came to him of that piece of land across the Anderson barn. Uh, that land had, had some programmably level stretches backed by hills with the thick trees and the creek. 
I thought of the casualty my grandfather entered in his diary. When Ruth came home, she went straight to Martin and said, The Lord told me this morning that he's of land near Anderson's barn in place. The grandfather prays and he thinks God is leading. And my grandmother says, God told me this. Uh, and as I got looking through my grandfather's diaries, I don't know how many times he writes of my grandmother, God told me to do. God said this. Um, and that's one of the wonderful things about it. You don't realize the heritage that God uh, I didn't know my grandmother very well, but reading how firm her faith was, I read in the diary entries that she decided to go with the Quakers over to Europe. Uh, my grandfather was very worried about the trip because it was, just, it was shortly after World War I. Things are not real settled in Europe. And yet, Ruth comes home, my grandmother comes home and says, God told me to go to Europe. My grandfather said, okay. And she said, so I'm going on this date and on this time I'll be back on this trip. And my grandfather writes, writes in his diary, uh, I am sure she is certainly her faith. And that's, you know, that's, that's all you kind of need to know about that. And yet she had a wonderful time when she came back and had made wonderful friends in the ministry. Uh, next slide. So we're looking at our passage here, Beloved of God. This verse shows up time and time and time in my grandfather's writings. We're trying to do this passage. Um, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before throughout his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit. Through him we have received grace and apostleship and obedience, among whom you also are the call of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved of God and called to be saints. The beloved here is our, our term agape, but the particular extension Greek is, it is a weird, interesting language, and the more letters you add to it, the more meaning you get into the word. But what it means is worthy of love. This beloved of God means that we are worthy of God's love. And we think to ourselves, but we're sinners, we're fallen creatures. We are totally depraved. How can we be worthy of God's love? Because of the redemption. Turn to the book of Romans chapter 11. This is the only other place, by the way, in the New Testament where the phrase, beloved of God, appears. Uh, 11.28. And if you use the New King James, it doesn't translate it quite the same. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to start at verse 26 of Romans chapter 11. So all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they do for enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through mercy shown to you they may obtain mercy. For God has committed to them all, uh, have committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths and riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are the judgments of the great, past, and mountain. What he's saying here is. The Jews were acting as enemies of Christians. But that was not a surprise to God. It was not out of the will of God. Yet they are the beloved because of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As we read the passage in its whole context, Israel will be saved, but it was time for them to be disobedient so that you as Christians could be brought in. And now that you as Christians can be brought in, the fullness of the gospel is that in the tribulation period, the message will go back. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths, verse 33. Oh, the depth and richness of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and ways past finding. Now, dear the beloved of God, because one, in the grand scheme of things, God had worked out before the foundation of the world that he would call us. He worked out before the foundation of the world that he would set the Jews aside for a time to bring the church in, and through disobedience, we become the reception of that mercy. It's all very complicated stuff. I have a professor when I was at Berea who was trying to work the mathematics of these words about. He was a strange fellow. Still is. And the sum of this message for Paul then is the depth and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his grace. That's just like this. Beloved of God. My grandfather was a wonderful Christian. Uh, in 1981, when I got my driver's license, uh, after the Bible camp period, over before school started, my grandfather would do a deputation trip. He would leave from Kingsport, Tennessee. He would drive all the way up 81 until he got to New York. He'd drive across New York State, cut into Ohio, cut back into Pennsylvania, cut through West Virginia, cut back into Ohio, and then come back in through uh, Nashville. It's a big, long loop wherein we would visit 150 churches and three to four weeks. Yeah, sometimes it was church, church, church. Amazing stories. Uh, now, my grandfather always had great stories about these reputation but My favorite story is we are in uh, Winchester, Virginia. We stop at a friend of his who runs a hotel. Uh, uh, well, actually, a motel. We get up the morning and we're leaving, and this friend of my grandfather's comes out carrying a toilet. We have a Plymouth Bar. Toilets don't fit in Plymouth Bar. The man says, God told me to give you a toilet. Now, my grandfather is a man of great faith and great humor, and so we get a blanket, we lay it over the trunk, we can't put it in the trunk. So the trunk is closed, blanket over that, toilet on top of that, ropes tying the toilet to, through the back windows of the back doors of the Velari. And we leave. And we're on the interstate. Here we are in a green Valari with lid tied to the back of the car, and a 78-year-old man driving. Uh, the, 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 the jokes are to, they just make themselves. 
We stop at a church, we stop at a friend, we stop at another church. A week and a half later, we pull into the Niagara Bible Conference Center with this toilet. And we pull into the conference center, and the conference director came out, and he looks at us and he says, how did you know? How did we know what? Well, this morning, one of the people sat on one of our toilets, and the ceramic broke, and it collapsed like that. And we had gotten there about a half hour after that. We had just gotten the other toilet out. We got the thing prepped, and they, were, they didn't have the money to buy a toilet. And here we drive up with the toilet to drop right and fit. Um, and my grandfather used to tell that story and say, a momentary embarrassment to see the working out of God's plan wheels within you. Stopping at a hotel with a toilet tied to the back of your car uh, and trying to explain that to the clerk, uh, we, we finally just came up with a story and said, you wouldn't believe us if we told And the conference center gave us 150 pounds of clothes that we distributed to the other churches on our way back wheels within you. Um, beloved of God, called to be saints. I tell this because as much as my grandfather was a great testimony, he was also darkened, I guess, by something in his life. When he was asleep, he would call out in the night, he would call out, God forgive me. Uh, and we would wake him up and ask, and he would never tell us. But Beloved of God, God loves us in spite of the things that we've done. God loves us because it is part of His perfect plan. That's why. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22. Those of you who come to Wednesday night should have this memorized. 